Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming, and welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill Briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. I'd like to begin by offering my thanks to Speaker Pelosi, uh, Senate Majority Leader Reid, and President Obama for elevating the topic of health policy and giving us yet another opportunity to discuss it on Capitol Hill. Over the past two years, we've hosted uh, about 16 briefings on all variety of health care subtopics from the problems with public plans, mandates, and price controls to the failure of the Massachusetts approach on which Obamacare is modeled, uh, to a look at health systems around the world, and to how free markets can outperform political direction. These events are all archived on our website in video and podcast form at cato.org slash events slash archive dot html. Now, if you want a blueprint for free market reforms, take a look at the five healthcare chapters in the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It's our publication that gives you a, an A to Z uh, menu of options for reducing um, the size and scope of government, restoring individual liberty, free markets, peace, etc. The uh, recommendations that lead each of those five chapters are collected on one of the items from the registration table that you should have picked up on the way in. And if you're interested in getting a print copy of the handbook, you can see me during or afterwards. So without further ado, let me introduce today's speaker. Michael Tanner is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He heads research into a variety of domestic policies with a particular emphasis on healthcare reform, social welfare policy, and social security. Under Tanner's direction, Cato launched the Project on Social Security Choice, which lays the policy foundations for fundamental and sustainable reform of retirement finances. His books include Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It, The Poverty of Welfare, Helping Others in Civil Society, and A New Deal for Social Security. Before joining Cato in 1993, Tanner served as Director of Research of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation and as Legislative Director for the American Legislative Exchange Council. We'll leave plenty of time for your questions after Mr. Tanner's presentation, and in the interests of eliminating redundancy, waste, and abuse of moderator's prerogative, I'll step aside and leave the floor to Mike. Well, thank you all very much, and I, I see there are still some folks out here who are not quite sick of health care yet, uh, unlike Missouri voters, uh, apparently. Uh, I have to, have to say it was a pretty extraordinary uh, thing last night in, in Missouri, as you, as you know, uh, by about three to one margin, voters voted down uh, the individual mandate, or voted for Proposition C, which would insulate their state, uh, at least symbolically, from the individual mandate. Uh, just one interesting tidbit about that. I just happened to look it up before I came over here, just, but just thought this would be worth pointing out. Uh, about 670,000 people voted against the individual mandate, voted for Proposition C in, in Missouri. Uh, and people said, well, they expected it to pass because it's going to be largely Republican voters uh, out there and they would vote for it. Uh, only 580,000 Republicans voted total in the Republican primary. So even if you assume that every single Republican who voted in their primary voted for Proposition C, that still leaves you about uh, 80 to 90,000 votes uh, short 
uh, of the number of vote, people who voted for Proposition C. Another 40,000 voters or so uh, didn't vote in either primary, just came in and voted on the, on the ballot question and then, then left without voting in, in either primary. Uh, again, if you assume that every single one of them came to vote for Proposition C, you still have over 40,000 Democrats who would have had to have voted for uh, Proposition C. And uh, w when we're talking about a primary vote here, we're not talking about just any old registered Democrat. We're talking about the party base. I mean, the people who turn out for primaries, the Democratic activists vote. And still, one out of every eight voters in the Democratic primary voted against the centerpiece of President Obama's uh, most important initiative so far. Uh, that, re that really, I think, shows the depth of the unpopularity uh, of this bill. At any rate, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the, what was in the bill, uh, what, in the law now. It, it has passed, of course. Uh, and uh, we were famously told once by Speaker Pelosi that we would have to pass the law in order to find out what was in it. Well, it has now passed, so we now can go back and find out a little bit about what's, uh, what's in it. I'm going to try and keep my remarks uh, <clears throat> quite short here. I mean, this is not the audience where I need to sort of lecture everybody on, you know, oh, my God, there's an individual mandate in the bill. Uh, so, uh, so I'll try to keep my remarks short and then maybe get to say some real questions and answers and we can sort of, sort of bore down in it that, that way. Uh, but, I, but I did want to sort of hit a few random points uh, that I think are, are worth making in the bill, so let's uh, kind of go through with it. Uh, the bill, of course, uh, as we all know, the, the law is, uh, was 2,409 pages long, about 477,520 words, or as I like to think about it, $1.2 million per word. Uh, that was the, uh, the actual main bill itself, the so-called Senate bill. Uh, it wasn't enough, of course, so we also had the reconciliation package, which added 153 pages and 34,000 words to the bill. So we're a little over 2,500 pages and 500,000 words total uh, to fix the health care system. And as a result of all that work, here is the new American health care system. Actually, in all fairness, I, I did, you know, this was prepared by the uh, Republican staff of the Joint Economic Committee, and, uh, and at, at Cato we're nonpartisan, and we thought that this was probably a little biased. This, this was probably a little bit partisan that they came out with this. So, so we developed our own chart, and this is what we think the health care system looks like. <laughs> so, so much simpler <laughs> uh, than, than what, what they developed. But, uh, but it does, uh, does say something. Uh, there's about 99 new boards and commissions that are established uh, and agencies that are established under the health care bill. But that's probably not it. Actually, there was a Congressional Research Service report that came out yesterday that said it is absolutely impossible to estimate how many boards, commissions, and agencies will ultimately be committed or be committed, uh, created under, the, under, this, uh, under this law uh, because in many places they're authorized to create more uh, agencies and commissions and boards, and they haven't figured out how many they want to create yet, so it's sort of an infinitely expanding federal bureaucracy here. Uh, so, that, that's potentially it. Uh, but, you know, as you know, the key components are there is an individual mandate and an employer mandate, uh, a host of new insurance regulations. Uh, there is, beginning in 2014, going to be these insurance exchanges in the states. 
And then finally, there is a number of subsidies and, and a significant expansion of, of the Medicaid program. There's a number of other small provisions that range, including all sorts of things, including uh, you know, have, restaurants having to post calorie counts and, uh, and things like that, and subsidies for physicians and uh, different groups. But those are, those are sort of the, the key components of it. Anyway, I want to take through this stage, hit a couple of sort of semi-random points that I think are very much worth noting as anyone sort of looks at this and, and discusses it. And the first of these is the whole question of universal coverage. I mean, if, if you go back to the debate, as you folks are all remember, I mean, I don't know how many times your members got up and had to debate this on the floor, but the, the driving force behind this whole debate was this question of universal coverage. Now, the, the fact that there are... And you know, I'm suspicious of the numbers, but let's just, just accept their official numbers is there 50 million Americans without health insurance, as the president said repeatedly. And we have to get every American health insurance. And that's why we were doing this whole health care reform thing was about getting all those Americans health insurance. So if that's the standard by which we're going to judge the success of this law, then, uh, then I think there's questions about how successful it really is. Because uh, if you look at the number of insured under, the, under this law, by the time you get to 2019, uh, you haven't achieved universal coverage. Uh, you certainly have increased the number of people with insurance, and you've reduced the number of people without insurance, and that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but you have not gotten universal coverage. In fact, you still have 23 million people without health insurance in 2019 after this, after this bill passes. And if you look at the, the way it goes, you're actually not doing much in, at all in terms of reducing the number of uninsured until you get to about 2014, then it dips down. Uh, about 2016, it bottoms out and then actually begins to rise slightly thereafter. You get down to about 21 million uninsured, and it begins to rise to about 24 million by 2019, 23, 24 million that you'll have uninsured at that point. And it's, it's not going down. Uh, if you look at the trend line, it's actually going to continue to rise out beyond 2019 slowly. So you're you know, sort of the 21 million in 2016 that's, uninsure, uh, that's still uninsured becomes your floor of the number of Americans without health insurance. So you haven't gotten anywhere near uh, universal coverage under this. <clears throat> it's also interesting to point out that if you look at that gap, the number of people, you know, between 50 and 24, the number of people you've gotten newly insured under this, uh, there's a lot of people, I think, who think that that means that we've got these people went out and got health insurance. But about 46, 47 percent of the newly insured under this are not getting private health insurance. They are simply being dumped into the Medicaid program. Uh, so nearly half of all the newly insured are not actually insured. They're simply being put into the Medicaid program with all the problems that we know Medicaid has in terms of access to care. About a third of physicians won't accept Medicaid patients, for example, uh, we, and in terms of the quality of care that they do receive. So, you know, if you want to judge it on the basis of universal coverage, I would suggest that we've made a modest improvement. We've gotten more people with insurance than we had before, and I guess that's an improvement over the status quo, but nowhere near the universal coverage that was originally the goal of this legislation. And when you start looking at the cost of the legislation and you begin to ask about bang for the buck, you have to wonder if that small reduction, about a half reduction in half of the number of uninsured, is worth the enormous cost that this bill is going to, going to cost. 
Uh, second thing uh, I think is worth pointing out under this, you know, one of the things that was a big point in the debates on this was can you keep your health insurance? If you have a health insurance plan today and you like it, can you keep it? You know, I, I, it's hard to imagine that the, the president didn't have a speech in which he didn't come out and say those words. If you have health insurance today and you like it, you can keep it. It was almost like a wind-up thing that he just sort of repeated that. You know, he came out, discussed nuclear arms, and he said, in addition to lowering the number of nuclear weapons, if you have health insurance today and you like it, you can. But, but unfortunately, the more we've looked into this, the more it looks like you're not going to be able to keep the health insurance today. In fact, it becomes increasingly difficult to find someone who actually will be able to keep the health insurance you have today. Uh, and you can look at this in a number of ways. For example, just with regular insurance, one of the things we know is that it, the mandates, the individual and employer mandates, are not just a question of do you have to have insurance. They are questions of do you have to have insurance that meets the government's requirements for what is insurance. Now, there's a certain logic to this. I mean, you really have to, you know, to say, well, you have to have insurance and, okay, I go out and buy my policy with a million-dollar deductible that costs $1.99 at Walmart, uh, probably isn't going to meet the requirements for the mandate. And, in fact, of course, this bill spells out at enormous length what it is that qualifies as insurance. It can't have deductibles of over a certain amount. It can't have co-payments for this service and that service. It, it has to provide certain benefits like mental health benefits and drug and alcohol rehabilitation and a prescription drug coverage, which is one reason why the prescription drug companies love this bill so much, uh, and, and other, other benefits that are, that are built in. Well, that's going to make a, in a lifetime, no lifetime caps, of course, and no annual caps and, and all, all of those sorts of things. Well, what a, you know, a lot of people are going to be have policies today that aren't going to meet those requirements. Uh, particularly, a lot of businesses provide policies today that don't meet those requirements. And uh, a memo that came out of HHS uh, about a month ago uh, indicated that as many as two-thirds of businesses will ultimately have to change their current insurance policy uh, in order to meet these requirements, that they will have to switch from the policy they have today to one that meets these additional requirements and brings in these additional benefits, even if that new policy is more expensive or has benefits that the employees don't want or whatever. It's about two-thirds of all businesses and about 80% of small businesses, uh, according to HHS, may ultimately have to switch uh, into, this new, uh, into this new policy. So those people would not be able to keep their current plans. People who don't get their insurance at work or have individual plans, at the law act is much better than the earlier drafts in that it does grandfather people in. Uh, the earlier drafts of the bill said that you'd have to switch uh, if you had a plan today and it didn't meet those requirements. They did grandfather people in under this bill. However, they also said if you make any material change in your policy, then you have to switch over and meet the, the full set of government requirements. Uh, and that means if you change the benefits or your deductibles or your or things like that, then you're going to have to, to get it over, and a lot of people are going to end up having to change that way. There's also a number of policies that simply are not going to be sold anymore. For example, a lot of seasonal workers or part-time workers have minimum policies that, that had uh, particularly lifetime caps, the one that they applied particularly in terms of people who had these sort of seasonal policies, seasonal workers and, uh, and part-time workers, who are getting inexpensive policies to cover them 
Uh, they're going, about a million of them, it was estimated, will lose their policies under, the, under this proposal. About a million people will, would have to switch under this uh, type of proposal. So they're going to be caught up in this, uh, in this as well. Uh, second, people who have health savings accounts and flexible spending accounts today are going to be in, uh, in significant trouble. Uh, oh, well, let, me, let me go back just one second before I get to that. One more thing on the mandates. Well, I said those policies were grandfathered in for people with individuals. They're grandfathered in for you as an individual, but those plans are not allowed to enroll any new members. <clears throat> so while you can keep that policy, the question of how long that policy will continue to exist, that plan will continue to exist if it can't enroll anybody new in the plan, uh, is, is questionable. So they may go away altogether. Uh, back to HSAs and FSAs. Uh, there's a big question about health savings accounts in, in the bill, and we don't know how they're going to fare. About 10 million Americans today have health savings accounts. Uh, now, there's nothing in the bill that prohibits health savings accounts. I'm going to be very clear about that. But there is, but there is restrictions on high-deductible insurance plans. And the, you have to have a high-deductible insurance plan married with your health savings accounts in order to make the tax-free contributions to your HSA. There is a lot of question about whether or not current high-deductible plans will be able to meet the requirements of this bill. And, and basically, it awaits a ruling by Secretary Sebelius on this. And it has a lot to do with the, how the actuarial value of the plan is determined. Do contributions to your HSA, for example, count towards the, act, towards the actuarial value uh, of this plan? Do they meet the, uh, the requirements in that regard? And we don't know. That, that remains to be determined uh, by the Secretary, and we'll have to wait. If she rules that it does not, uh, and then you could see a lot of these high-deductible plans go away, which means that the HSAs would go away. Second, we do know there are restrictions on FSAs. The, uh, the amount that you can con uh, contribute tax-deductible to an FSA has been cut in half from 5000 to, to uh dollars to $2,500 on this, and you can no longer use your FSAs for things like uh, over-the-counter medications, for example. Uh, those type of restrictions have been put in, in place on those. And then finally, uh, Medicare Advantage plans, the, the subsidy to the insurance companies for offering uh, Medicare Advantage plans uh, is significantly reduced uh, under, under this bill, under this law. And uh, the result is going to be a, a reduction, according to CMS, about half of people with Medicare Advantage plans will lose those plans and have to go back into traditional Medicare uh, under those. And about one, in, I think one in five seniors currently has Medicare Advantage. So about one in ten seniors will end up having to switch uh, under these proposals. So, <clears throat> you know, you look at this all together, and uh, the results are pretty clear that an awful lot of Americans are not going to be able to keep their, their current uh, insurance plan. I think that's, that's pretty, pretty set. How much is all this going to cost? Uh, well, uh, you know, the, the easy answer, and I could just you know, say a lot and, and, and go home, uh, but, but I think we need to walk through it a little bit more in a little bit more depth than that. We do know this is not going to reduce total health care spending. Uh, now, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. If you're going to give more things to more people, it's probably not going to cost less. And this, this, uh, you know, now, I realize why I'm talking to Congress, so that's not quite as obvious. But, 
but, uh, but, but you know, th that is true. And if you look at what CMS has reported under this bill, this is their projections. The dark line is what's going to happen after the lead, uh, under the law. The, uh, the dotted line was projections before the law. And you can see they project that over the first, over 10 years, you're going to spend about $350 billion or so more as a result of this bill uh, on health care in this country than, than you were if you hadn't passed this bill. Uh, you know, and that's really not a big shock. It, it shouldn't be, and, it, you know, if you want to provide more health insurance, you're probably going to spend more money, but that, that is there. And so anybody who says, well, we've reduced health care spending in this country, uh, there, there's no evidence to suggest that at all. But all of that does mean something when you start getting into who's going to pay for it and how much it's going to cost. Uh, you know, as you recall... When we start talking about how much the bill itself is going to cost, how much we're going to have to pay for under this law, uh, there was a time, you know, right before they passed it, there, there was this wonderful scene where they, they all came out and they just got in the CBO report. And, you know, Harry Reid and others, they, were, they almost dislocated their shoulders because they were patting themselves on the back uh, about the fact that they'd brought the cost down to $950 billion over 10 years. And I, I remember when $950 billion was actually a lot of money. Uh, you know, now I realize that you know it's it's a rounding error in the latest bailout, but uh, but you know, okay, let, let's start with the idea that this was going to cost nine hundred and fifty billion dollars. Uh, well, there was a few problems with with that actually. Uh, for example, uh, they sort of left out some things. Uh, for example, there's a hundred and according to CBO, there's a hundred and five billion dollars in implementation costs that go with this bill that are that are uh, authorized but not appropriated under under this bill, and those are costs for hiring new bureaucrats, new IRS agents, uh, setting up state exchanges, uh, doing all those sorts of things that have to be done to put the bill in place. And they estimate over ten years or so that's going to cost about 105 billion dollars. That's not included in that $950 billion cost. And then, of course, we know also that there's the notorious dock fix, uh, where in estimating that $950 billion, uh, CBO assumed, because the bill said it would, uh, that next year that they would simply reduce Medicare spending by 23% by reducing the reimbursement rates to physicians and other providers by that 23%. Now, in fairness, that's what current law said, uh, that those, those cuts were supposed to go in, into place. Uh, and, uh, you know, those cuts have been supposed to go into place since 2002, and every year Congress, not being particularly suicidal, you know, postponed those, those cuts. Uh, and, uh, but this year they assumed, CBO said, you know, has to play by the rules they're given, and so they assumed that next year those cuts would actually take place, or this year those cuts actually would actually take place. And, of course, we know that, uh, not to say that they're cynical, but at the same time that they were out there celebrating how those cuts were going to take place, they introduced an entire separate bill repealing those cuts. And then Congress said, hey, wait a minute, that's a whole separate bill. <laughs> you know, that cost, that's not part of this bill. That's this bill over here. We don't have to count that. <laughs> you know, just, just imagine how much easier your household budget would be if, you know, your mortgage was a whole separate bill and you didn't have to count it. You know, your balance sheet would look so, so much better uh, if you did that. Uh, and we had, you know, you, we just went through, you just had a big fight over this, and when they decided they couldn't repeal it altogether, so they 
did what you always do, and you postponed it till next January. You passed a six-month extension, uh, postponement of the cuts, and you're going to have to come back and deal with this all again next year. But those cuts, if you repeal altogether those those 20, 23% cuts, it's going to add about $350 billion to the, to the cost uh, of the bill. Uh, and then finally, uh, we noticed the fact that you know, CBO, which I think does a tremendous job. I have nothing but respect for CBO, but they do have to play within the four corners of the rules they're given, and one of which is that they give a 10-year budget score. So when they scored this bill, they went from 2010 to 2019. But we noticed that the bill doesn't actually spend any money until 2014. So what you're getting is a 10-year score of $950 billion for six years of spending. And we said, well, what happens after 2019. It's not like, you know, the, it's going to drop off a cliff and stop spending money at, at that point. So we actually looked at it and we said, what happens if you take that bill and you add in the $105 billion uh, in uh, implementation costs and you add in the $350 billion for the dock fix and Instead of going into starting in 2014, you take it out for 10 years of actual bills. So you start in 2014 and you go to 2020, uh, 2023 instead of just to 2019. And beyond, the you know, CBO didn't score it beyond 2019. But we said, okay, the, if you look at the slope, it's rising at 6% a year when you get to 2019. We said, let's just continue that. Let's assume it doesn't increase. There's no increase in utilization, none of those things. Let's be conservative. And just assume it continues to rise at 6% a year beyond that. Well, the actual cost through 10 years of implementation, then, if you add all those things in, is not $950 billion, but $2.7 trillion. Now, we all, now, you know, we also said how, you know, going to have to pay for this. And if you remember, they, when, the other thing they were very proud of was that they raised taxes enough in this bill so that it saved about $150 billion over 10 years uh, on the budget deficit. It, it reduced the budget deficit, the president pointed out all the time. $150 billion is about half of the budget deficit you ran up last month, just to put it in perspective. But over 10 years, it does save that, save that much. Well, we said, wait a minute, but if we got this new cost, what does that mean? <clears throat> So the other thing we did was we assumed that revenue grew at the same 6% rate that the spending grew. And we said, if you look, take it out to 2023 again, this bill actually adds about $350 billion to the budget deficit over that period. And again, not a, not a huge amount of money, but it does turn it around and actually adds to the deficit, not taking away from the deficit, so if you actually look at that. So it, is, so it actually is an increase in the, in the budget deficit. The other thing that we think is worth pointing out on this is just in terms of not whether or not it's paid for, because we think this is something that's often neglected, but what it does to the size of government overall. And this is, I, I think, a fascinating chart. This is government spending as a percent of GDP. And what I point out this is right, right now we're spending about 28% of GDP uh, better than one out of every four dollars that's produced in the United States, of everything that's produced by this country is now consumed by the federal government. 
And you can add about another 10% on if you wanted to take into state and local governments. But, but just the federal government alone consumes 28% of GDP. That's up from the traditional. Traditionally, it takes about 21% of GDP. But this is, uh, you know, since with the bailouts and TARP and all these sort of things, we've gone up to 28%. That is on a road right now that without the health care bill or anything, it would reach about 40% of GDP by the ter- middle of the century. I mean, if you can imagine, that's higher than France consumes right now or anything like that, about 40% of GDP. If you can imagine our economy surviving. People talk about, well, we just have to raise taxes to balance the budget. It's not a question of balancing the budget. Can you, if we could raise taxes to 40% of, every, you know, of GDP in taxes and have a balanced budget, can you still imagine what the economy would be like? I mean, the economy just can't assume the government's going to take 40% of everything we make and produce in this country. Uh, and it actually rises to uh, almost 70% by the end of the century under these projections. Uh, these are all from the CBO, by the way. The top green line is what does the health care bill do to that? Adds on top of it. That's additional spending as a result of this health care law. And you actually end up with the government taking over 80% of GDP. That's the federal government alone taking more than 80% of GDP by the end of the century throw in state and local government on top of it, and the government consumes every penny of everything that's ever produced in the United States. Obviously, that's not sustainable going forward, but it's just worth considering that it's not just a question of do you pay for it, it's a question of the ultimately of, of the size of government uh, in this country. Uh, we are paying for it, of course, with a host of new taxes. I won't go through the whole list. There's the increase in payroll taxes, there's the extension of the payroll tax to investment income and dividends. Uh, at a time when we want more economic growth in this country investment, what we've done is actually raise taxes on investment, uh, which doesn't strike me as the best idea. Uh, there, there's t- the tanning tax, there's, uh, uh, there, the, there's taxes on insurance, there's the taxes on medical devices, there's taxes, uh, there are pretty much taxes on everything. Uh, they're building about 15 new taxes that are in this bill. But one of the things I thought was particularly interesting was the, the marginal tax rates under this bill. And it does produce a, a number of states that, it, as a result of this new, new law, will have marginal tax rates that are over 50% when you take into their, the federal taxes, state and local taxes, and now the new taxes that are imposed under, under this law. And you find that California, Hawaii, Maryland... New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Vermont will all have marginal tax rates that are higher than 50% uh, as a result of this bill. So I think that that's <coughs> something to, to worry about if you're from those states. Uh, one last thing I wanted to point out was uh, a word on the, the Medicare savings. Uh, if you know, Secretary Sebelius had a press conference, I believe it was yesterday, or it might have been the day before, day before yesterday, to announce how this one of the wonderful things about this law was that it had extended the life of the of the Medicare trust fund, thereby saving the Medicare program, uh, which we all know is about $100 trillion in debt. Uh, this was going to extend the life of the trust fund, uh, and therefore we were, we were fine. Uh, unfortunately, that was, it was pointed out several times at a press conference tour that, that that double counts the money. What they, what they do is they, take, they save some $500 billion in Medicare savings, they put it in the so-called Medicare trust fund, and then immediately take it out of the Medicare trust fund and use it to subsidize the health care bill, thereby counting it both to finance the health care bill and to extend the life of the, social, the, the Medicare trust fund. Well, a CBO <laughs> says, you know, that 
points out, says, the quote, the savings to the health insurance trust fund under the new health care law would be received by the government only once. So they can't be set aside to pay for future Medicare spending and at the same time pay for current spending on other parts of the legislation. You would think that that's sort of common sense. You know, you can't spend the same dollar twice. You know, I mean, you give it to me, I'll write myself an IOU, and then I'll go spend it someplace else, and I get the IOU and the, what I bought, and, you know, I'm twice as rich, right? You know, that, that's government accounting, but in the real world, that doesn't work that way. So I, I just want to make sure that nobody is actually deluded into the idea that we've somehow actually done anything to fix Medicare under this bill. I mean, Medicare is still $100 trillion in debt regardless uh, of what this law has done. Now... <laughs> I also one other word on Medicare cuts in this bill. There are some 550, almost 600 billion, I believe, 600 billion dollars in Medicare cuts in this bill. Regardless, I, during the debate, the Democrats came out repeatedly to say they were not cutting Medicare, and the Republicans constantly beat up on them for cutting Medicare. Here's the simple fact: Yes, the law cuts Medicare, and thank God it does. <laughs> it should. The program's $100 trillion in debt. I would hope we're cutting Medicare. And it was pure demagoguery for Republicans to sit out there and to say, oh, my God, we should never cut the Medicare program. Of course we should. Now, it was equally dishonest for the Democrats to then pretend that they were doing anything to fix the $100 trillion in the Medicare thing. They just simply took the money, cut Medicare, and spent the money somewhere else, which doesn't do any good at all, but... You know, the whole idea that we should never cut Medicare uh, was, was slightly disingenuous. So I, I, I just want to make that point pretty clear. Uh, what about insurance premiums? Uh, the other thing, you know, the president pointed out a lot, insurance premiums uh, are in trouble. You know, in fact, according to the Congressional Budget Office, and, and this is kind of scary, according to the Congressional Budget Office, if we had not passed this health care law, insurance premiums, we're going to double in this country over the next six years. I mean, just, just figure that. I mean, you know, if you're paying what you're paying insurance now, if you're a business or whatever, they're going to, they were going to double over the next six years if we did not pass this law. As a result of this passing this law, insurance premiums are going to double in the next six years. Uh, it didn't change a thing. <laughs> in fact, if you look at it at all, if you have a big business, uh, there's no change. You're going to have no change in insurance premiums. This is, I say, it's going to double. This is starting with that baseline of doubling. Uh, there'd be no change, or maybe three percent slower than the doubling going on if you're in a big business. Small businesses, no change to perhaps a one percent savings. And if you buy health insurance on your own, that is, you don't get health insurance through work, then your insurance premiums will go up 13 percent faster as a result of passing this law than if we had done nothing at all and they had simply doubled. So, uh, so that, you know, essentially, if you're buying it on your own, you're worse off. Otherwise, everyone else is about in the same boat, bad boat, that they're going to get. Anybody, anybody who thinks, and I understand October 15th is when the insurance premium bills go out generally, anybody who thinks they're going to open their bill and find it lower this year because we passed this health care law is sadly mistaken. Here's, here's the actual numbers. Uh, what you're looking at is right now, for, big business, for businesses, they pay about $13,375 for a family policy. Uh, 
If we had not passed the bill, it would go up to $20,300 for a big business, big bill by 2016. Uh, that big business now will only be paying $20,100 as a result of having passed this law. So they're going to save 200 bucks a year per family as a result of this law. That's the, that's the maximum savings. Uh, could, be, could be less. A small business uh, is paying, again, 13, a little over 13000 right now per family. Uh, without the bill, that would go up to about 19300 Thank God we've passed this law because now they're only going to pay $19,200. So, so they could save a maximum of about 100 bucks a year as a result of having passed this. <clears throat> and individuals, if you buy a policy on your own, uh, you're paying about six, a little over $6,000 now. That would have gone up to about 13000 if we hadn't passed the bill. But having passed the bill, now you can expect to pay a little over $15,000. So you uh, are going to have to pay a couple of thousand dollars more. Uh, for your insurance as a result of this bill if you buy it on an individual basis. <clears throat> uh, and that's an average, by the way. What's going to happen is if you're old under the bill, under the community rating provisions of this bill, if you're older and sicker, your premiums are going to come down. So rather than double, you might only get a 50% increase if you're older and sicker or whatever. But if you're young and healthy, like most of you folks, your premiums are going to go up even faster. And there's been several studies that have estimated that the worst is something by the Council for Health Insurance that says that you could pay as much as 95% more as a result of this law. The least was by the Rand Corporation, which said about a 17% increase as a result of this law for young and healthy folks. And Millman uh, Associates puts it at about 30%. They're somewhere in the middle. But there's no doubt the fact that if you're young and healthy, your premiums are going to go up uh, under, under this law. Uh, all the studies that have come out since the law passed have, have indicated that. Let me, let me just close, if I can, because I, I think one of the things that was missed in the whole health care debate was what it was really about. You know, it got all tangled up in numbers, and, you know, I've just gone through all these sort of things about the cost and community rating and uh, guaranteed issue and, you know, the, what about this person out there who, uh, you know, with a pre-existing condition, you know, we saw, you know, press conference after press conference where somebody was brought up and, uh, you know, they, they've just lost their job the day after they were diagnosed with cancer. And they've been thrown out of their house because they couldn't pay their mortgage. Uh, their house was repossessed. So now they and their three special needs children are all out on the street while their husband in Iraq who just lost his leg in an IUD explosion. Is, yeah, at, at any rate, uh, we went through all that. But... The real question, ultimately, I think, comes down to the basic question of politics, which is who decides? Who ultimately gets to make decisions about your life, about whether or not you're going to buy insurance or what kind of insurance you're going to buy, what benefits it's going to have, what doctor you're going to see, what treatment that doctor is going to prescribe for you, what hospital you're going to go to, how are you going to pay for it? All those decisions. Are they ultimately going to be made by you? Or do you cede the right to make those decisions to some expert somewhere who knows so much better about your life than you do and gets to make those decisions for you? And I ultimately think that that's what politics is all about. Whatever the issue might be, it really comes down to, you know, do you make decisions about how you save for your retirement? What charities you want to support? Where do you want to send your kids to school? Who do you want to marry? You know, it's all about 
Who decides? And that was the question we should have been asking a lot more in this health care debate. And then we'd know a lot more about what's in the bill. Thank you all very much.